I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit LondonReviewBookshop.co.uk forward slash events. I'm so, so excited to talk to you about this book. So Olivia is known to so many of us. Um, worldwide for numerous books, To the River, The Trip to Echo Spring, The Lonely City, Crudo, Funny Weather, and now Everybody. These award-winning books, many of them. And Olivia, I think, is known to so many people for these incredibly deeply researched, deeply thought through, and deeply felt books that are so lively, they're so curious, they're so exploratory. And I think of Olivia's writing as um, having this really lovely kind of painterly style in a way. This writing that is brisk and bold and confident and often joyful, but that always gets to the heart of really complicated, often painful matters so, so piercingly. And I think that everybody does this to the max. And I think that in this book, Olivia is kind of pushing these aspects of her writing even further. And I feel that it's an even more ambitious book in a way than the other books, in that it has this incredibly wide cast of characters. We've got Willembreich, Susan Sontag, Andrea Dworkin, Agnes Martin, Nina Simone, Anna Mendieta, Malcolm X, Philip Guston, Bayard Rustin. And they're all woven into one another, including also some other characters who are no less important, but but who maybe operate a little bit more in the background in the book. So people like the Marquis de Sade, Freud, Kate Bush, Edith Jacobson, who I would love to hear um, you talk about. The result of this book, I think, is this really intricate and dazzling piece of writing where so many elements are woven into this beautiful lattice work that Olivia makes look so effortless. And that I think probably is not effortless. It's so hard to do this kind of writing, I think, that that she really epitomizes and has made her own. And there's so much for us to talk about. But so, Olivia, maybe we should start with Willem Reich, because he is such a central figure in the book. And I wondered if um, if maybe the place to start was actually in that first chapter about illness. You say you say in that first chapter, I think, that this idea that Willem Reich has of the body as a storage unit for emotional distress really kind of resonated with you or struck a chord with you. But you, you talk about his ideas and Susan Sontag, for instance, in that chapter, in terms also of the kind of the pitfalls of that idea. And towards the end, you say that you you sort of didn't want to meddle anymore with the body when you're talking about your experience as a herbalist. So perhaps you could start with, with that terrain of, of illness and your own kind of training. Yeah, sure. Um, oh my God, I'm so, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to be in the psychic space of the LRB and so happy to be talking to Catherine. I admire very deeply and who's writing about sex, I think is just, um, you know, ongoingly extraordinary. Maybe I should just say who Reich is first for people who don't know and who haven't read the book yet. Um, so Reich was a sort of, he began as a psychoanalyst. He began as a psychoanalyst in Vienna in the 1920s. He was Freud's protégé. This is the very early period of psychoanalysis. So this is when 
really the idea of a cure hadn't been established. There was a sense of the terrain, that there's an unconscious, that there are motivations and mysterious workings of how trauma is manifest by way of symptoms. But Freud hadn't yet mapped out exactly what the psychoanalytic encounter involved. Right, a very passionate young man, a very sort of urgent, impatient, sort of excessive character, found it all very frustrating, sitting with his patients, listening to them ruminate. He had this strong impression that what was really happening in the encounter wasn't said at all. It was happening inside his patients' bodies, and it was being conveyed to him by his patients' bodies. Somebody might be saying something about, you know, a dream they'd had, and yet they clearly were showing utter terror or a cold defensiveness or a sneer that was habitual and he would see it every time. And he started to wonder what was going on. And his theory about it was that people are told from the very beginning of their lives what kinds of emotional experiences are allowed to be expressed and what kinds aren't. Boys don't cry, girls don't sit like this. This sense that some things are disallowed. And as traumatic experiences happen, people clamp down on the feeling of it. They don't know how to process it. And so it's basically locked in. This, this is Reich's great idea. And over the years, I won't, I won't go into the whole narrative of his life, but he began to think about illness in similar terms as illness as a sort of manifestation of those impacted layers of suffering. And I don't think that's the whole story of illness at all. But what I do think is that Illness provides ground for people to encounter those sufferings and maybe recognise them, name them and process them. So Sontag is somebody, I mean, she's Reich's great critic. She wrote Illness as Metaphor, probably her most famous work against Reich. She had cancer and she wanted to say illness is not meaningful. Illness is not symbolic. This random thing is happening to me. And having all of these narratives about what cancer means or the kind of personality that has cancer is meaningless. It's nonsense. She says, on the other hand, there are her diaries, there are her letters. And it is clear that she actually utterly believed what Reich thought. She used her own cancer as ways of thinking about her relationship with her mother, her sense of abandonment, her relationship with her body, her sense of her body's non-existence, the fact that her sexuality was closeted. And I think that sort of relationship with illness is something that we're all doing all the time. So when I worked as a herbalist, I would see it over and over again. Patients came with physical conditions, but they used those physical conditions as ground for thinking. And it's so interesting and sort of agonising to publish this book into the moment of the COVID crisis, where everybody is grappling with physical vulnerability in different ways, because it felt like writing sort of should take illness more seriously had quite a different resonance a year ago to the kind of resonance it has now when we are taking it so seriously, but perhaps not thinking about it with the full suite of feeling and complexity that Wright brought to it. Yeah, and I love I love what you do in that chapter because, um, I mean, the Sontag material is so interesting because of the way she, like in her diaries, she, she writes in this quite Reichian way about her own body and about when she starts analysis, she thinks of it in these really bodily terms. She talks about you know, kind of shitting the stuff out and it's all quite digestive metaphors and, and you know, the role of the orgasm as this kind of, that the, when, you know, the orgasm arrives, it's this kind of cosmic, life-changing event for her. And it's so, the resonances with Reich are so kind of deep, but you you draw out so well in that chapter the difficulties that she, and, and perhaps not just she, had in speaking publicly about that kind of thing, partly because maybe the legacy of Freud is so complicated that just to talk about the unconscious is to, to make ourselves kind of feel vulnerable to some kind of accusation or something. And, and, and you write about in your in your training as a as a herbalist, kind of treading this really fine line between on the one hand, wanting to recognize this, all this kind of bodily and psychological richness that your patients were bringing. But the kind of the shadow side of, of perhaps that kind of world of what's the word like sort of alternative medicine, maybe to just speak a bit broadly, the shadow, which is, you know, people like Louise Hay, who thought, you know, you just think positive, think your way out of cancer. So 
it's it's so it's such a tightrope walk, isn't it, to even bring those elements into the public realm for people. And it feels like Wright does this over and over again in different arenas that he does happen to situate himself on a tightrope between things that are very liberating to think about and things that are very toxic and constricting. On the other hand, if you take it too far, it becomes very oppressive. But that that particular narrative, like he, he is the person, I think, who underpins so much of what in the 90s was called New Age thinking when I was practicing as a herbalist and now would be called the wellness movement. And those ideas are just so often appalling. So Louise Hayes was somebody who, um, you know, she was kind of a charismatic healer. And during the AIDS crisis, she became almost a guru. Huge amounts of people would go and see her because AIDS had such a prior status and she was one of the few people who would welcome AIDS patients. But at the same time, she was analysing AIDS as an inability to love yourself enough. She analyses every disease in these terms. So polio is jealousy and acne is self-hatred. And that kind of rigid model of this emotional landscape or this mental landscape causes this physical condition, I think, is absurd and nonsensical. But at the same time, the idea that the physical things that happen to our physical bodies don't have a relationship with our emotional lives or our political lives is obviously absurd. This is the ground. The physical body is the ground in which we experience everything else. I was just thinking as well, when you were talking about Sontag, it's interesting how it hadn't occurred to me when I was writing the book, but how much it mattered, how much it was necessary for her in the process of becoming an intellectual to say, I don't have a body. I exist purely in the realm of mind because the woman is always positioned back to the body. So Sontag wouldn't brush her hair, wouldn't wash herself, wouldn't sleep, wouldn't eat. All of these ways in which she just disregarded bodily existence. Mm. It's partly, I think, driven by this, I operate in the life of the mind and you will not reduce me to my body because mm. I won't have a body to be reduced to. She's photographically reproduced, looking so beautiful and glamorous, but actually as a sort of bodily presence, she really erases herself until she has cancer. There's so many strands that I want to follow up that, I'll, I'll come back to a couple of but but when you're talking there about um Sontag as as, as trying to refuse the um you, you know the risk that, that women tend to face of being reduced to their to their bodies in the public realm it links to something I wanted to ask you about which was this amazing thread throughout the book of the prison so metaphors about the prison of the body people feeling locked into the body and and the prison itself, so the history of the, the prison system, fascinating material that you go into, and particularly in relation to Malcolm X and the kind of history of, of the cell um, in prison systems and, and the relationship between, you know, the kind of uh, perhaps wishful but not altogether unreal hopes for prisons as places of education, which was certainly the case for Malcolm X but also the prison as the place of kind of humiliation of the body and as a place that reproduces dynamics of slavery, essentially. But, but this thread of the prison is so, it's, it's like a kind of refracting mirror through the book. And I found it so exciting to read about these metaphors of the prison in um, relation to Andrea Dworkin. So the kind of, uh, you know, women being sometimes literally imprisoned in their homes, but imprisoned within their, sexualized body or feminized body and the Marquis de Sade and Edith Jacobson, this psychoanalyst um, who was a friend of Reich's and who was imprisoned under the Nazis and then did research into um, the effects of the prison experience on the psyche. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the object of the prison and the metaphor of the prison in the book. Yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased that you picked up on that and there's the other the other artifact I'd bring into that is Agnes Martin's grid paintings which mm -hmm. really captured that sort of ambiguity about the prison that it is both the grids that you're trapped inside but there's a window through which you can vanish dissolve not in the prison system per se but the possibility of embodiment being a way that you can reach freedom despite the fact that embodiment so often is a prison so that that was the sort of narrative that I wanted to map out with the book and I think once you once you have a thread like that so the, the thread began really with Reich had built this liberation machine which is like a little telephone box and he believed that you would sit in it and absorb a kind of healing energy and you would be liberated this is somebody who in his youth had been a 
sexual liberationist and activist, somebody who was very much about bodies in the streets. And he comes in the end to this sort of rather tragic conclusion that this is the route to freedom. This little box that he sat himself in led to his own persecution by the American government and eventually his own imprisonment. So it felt from the very beginning as if these images of prisons and confined spaces and the body as a confined space were coming up over and over again. And I think, you know, when I write this kind of book, other other people working on a similar frequency sort of flow into it. So the Marquis de Sade, who both writes narratives of abominable incarceration, you know, the chateau at Silling in which the most terrible things happen to people and in which you see that the body can be turned against itself. The body can be a site of horror. That, that's the baseline of the book. The body can be a site of horror inescapably. So Saad tells us that story. Andrea Dworkin tells us that story. Malcolm X tells us that story. You can be completely imprisoned inside your body for various reasons, and various objectives. But at the same time, the body is also the force by which we win our liberation. And this book really tries to bring together the history of liberation struggles, actually people putting their bodies on the line in order to seize and gain liberation, but also ways in which people have dodged the grid, tried to um, inhabit their bodies without this sort of armature of ideas about what their body is, what their body is capable of, the sort of wounds applied to us because of cultural, social and political ideas about gender, about race. So the sense, my sense of the free body is a body that can escape that, but also a body that can make a world in which those forces aren't so powerful and reprehensible. But both those things sort of work simultaneously. Yeah, and I thought it was it was so um it was so brilliant the way you talk so compassionately and kind of probingly about Andrea Dworkin, I think, and her experience of of violence at the hands of men and, and her own writing. You, you you talk about the kind of uh strident and stylish and uncanny writing, this kind of inoculation against violence, the poison that cures. Which is but so like sad, which is so like her great enemy sad. Yeah. And the, and you and you talk about how when you encounter um the feminist writing that is kind of talking about the violence done to women and and, and about pornography. So Kate Millett and Andrea Dworkin, I think you you talk about reading sexual politics as a teenager and being you know, excited by it. You know, these, these women were writing in these really like visceral, often quite erotic ways about the experience of being in a body that is, you know, subject to kind of so much projection and so much violence. But the way in which you use the Marquis de Sade to, and, you know, and Angela Carter's work as well, to um, to question some of the inflexibility within An Andrea Dworkin's thought. But then you talk about the Marquis de Sade's own experience as a body in a prison cell rendered abject, which is then the root of the concept of sadism that, you know, is his, mm. as a way to kind of illuminate these really painful dynamics in feminist writing itself, I thought was such a was such a clever way of kind of, you know, having these ideas and these sympathies and these concerns circulate across time. Um, through, I suppose, kind of psychoanalytic ideas about the regression to to an infantile state that is also a critique of, of what prison does to people. So, and perhaps you could say a bit about Edith Jacobson, because I didn't know much about her, and I found that, that just an unbelievably interesting part of the book. I might just say a tiny bit about Sad first, because I, I find mm -hmm. him so fascinating. So I, I felt like Andrew Dworkin's account of Sad was Starred as rapist, starred as person who enacted all the things that he wrote about in some way. The writing and the doing were inseparable. And her take on it, her sort of accounting of Saad was like, these are sort of lecherous writings. And I spent a while, a very unpleasant while, reading Saad. And those aren't lecherous books. Those are pretty much as hellish as literature gets. I mean, they are abysmal and recursive and go round and round on almost a sort of limit case of what can be done to another body, this and then this and then this, like an alphabet of distress. And 
I wanted to understand what he was doing. And by reading Angela Carter on him, this extraordinary book, The Saudi Woman, which I feel like isn't talked about enough anymore and is really one of her best books. It's her sort of entanglement with Saad. And she sees him as somebody who is saying, you know, you guys, you all want liberty. But what does liberty actually look like? If one person has total liberty over another, what does it look like? It does not look very nice. It doesn't look very good. Liberty is something that has to either be shared or it is liberty plus oppression. And I think he makes that violent and uncomfortable equation so vivid that people can't look. It's unbearable to look at. It gets so to the heart of our um, sort of hypocritical ideas about liberty. So her read on him was very exciting to me. And then realising that he had spent this time in prison, that he'd written... Um, 120 days sudden in a prison cell on his like long what is it 22 foot scroll in tiny tiny writing one hour a day when he had light thrusting it into the cracks in the stones to hide it from his guards so this, this sense that it's a book that's absolutely written inside the conditions of prison and is about that dynamic felt like it sort of illuminated the whole book for me in a way it illuminated that the complexity of ideas about freedom and how yay freedom freedom fries we want freedom but is actually trite there's, there's much more complex checks and balances about freedom than it is comfortable to admit so Saad in his Saad in his cell and the Reichian thread together led me to Edith Jakobsen who was a member of Reich's community in Berlin the, the sort of activist left wing they were called the children the second generation of psychoanalysts a group of whom really wanted both to resist Hitler, they were anti-fascists, but um, believed in a kind of communism that made them have very uneasy relationships with Freud. This is a complicated story, but basically when the polyclinic was taken over and aronized, pretty much all of the psychoanalysts left, apart from Edith Jacobson, a Jewish young analyst who stayed on. And she was working as an anti-fascist secretly and in the very early years of Nazi rule she was discovered and imprisoned for her allowing meetings to take place in her house keeping the identity of an activist who'd been murdered secret so, so you know your standard sort of early on anti-fascist activities so she lands up in a prison cell heartbroken desolate terrified and Amazingly, she decides that she's going to start recording what's happening to her and write a psychoanalytic paper about not what the institution of the prison means, but what impact the institution of the prison has on the individual, which most psychoanalysts can't do because they are not an individual in prison. It's a pretty sort of rare experience. So she wrote in the end two papers. One of them was smuggled out and read at a conference at Marienbad, and then eventually she escaped quite daringly across Europe and ended up in America and wrote another version of this paper, which talks about what prison does in terms of regression, in terms of breaking down the object world that the person lives in with the people around them and how the sort of sadistic framework of the prison, and particularly the prison uh, and guard, completely destroys that and her take basically is the same as Malcolm X what you're doing in a prison cell is not going to have any benefit on the prisoner or on the world outside and that sort of very thoughtful very closely argued and very lived account felt to me so valid she's not she's not really talked about in prison abolition literature I think because she's European she's not kind of brought into that conversation so much but it felt to me like it's it's as revolutionary and it's as provoking yeah and someone else who you talk about um who maybe hasn't had a as much um attention as he should have is um bayard rustin so a black gay man whose sexuality ended up posing a problem for the civil rights movement but who was absolutely instrumental in shaping that movement and resisting his own, the conditions of his own imprisonment in really inventive and sort of hugely kind of significant ways in terms of, you know, ideas about prison abolition and, and civil rights. That was such interesting part of the book. 
And it's so interesting that we don't know, I mean, that he isn't talked about in the same way that people like Martin Luther King are talked about, because he was the architect of the March on Washington. He was the person who organised it, but he wasn't allowed to be present as its face because he was homosexual. And his sexuality throughout his lifelong engagement with the civil rights movement was always causing a problem, was always meaning that he had to take sort of backroom roles, that he had to be hidden from view in various ways. So his relationship with prison, which happens all the way through his life, begins when he was really young and resisting the war and saying that he wouldn't fight as a black man, he didn't want to be part of the army, and he believed in non-violence. So cheerfully, I will not do this and you can put me in a prison cell. So off he goes to Lewisburg Penitentiary and not Lewisburg, he goes to another prison first and immediately turns his energies along with all of the other conscious, conscientious objectors that were imprisoned at that time on desegregating the prison. And he doesn't do this in a low key way. He demands a, a black prisoner demands a meeting with the white head of the prison and says, we're going to talk about desegregation and here are the ideas that I've set up. This is the bullet point list of how we're going to do it and perhaps I can run it for you and the prison the head of the prison is like oh, what the fuck but gradually <laughs> because Rustin is so charismatic and charming gradually is sort of brought along to thinking well but you know perhaps we could try this perhaps we could try it on one floor let's see how it goes so Rustin begins to desegregate this prison totally extraordinary but by sheer force of will but Immediately, his sexuality comes into play. He's caught in some sort of mysterious sexual incident with another man or two men. And immediately, everything that he's trying to do in the prison becomes impossible. But also, the body that he's working with outside the prison, the um, anti-war activists that he's part of at the time, pretty much disown him. They, they're just the most heart-rending letter after letter to him saying, Bayard, Bayard, please, could you marry a woman? Please stop doing this appalling. You know, your libido is out of control. You've got to check yourself for the greater work. So you have the sense of this person under enormous pressure just saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm a gay man and I'm going to continue my sexual life. And at the same time, I'm going to continue as an activist. And he's just, in a way like Reich, he's just thrown out of body after body. So he ends up, um, he's one of the precursor to the Freedom Riders who go into the South riding on the buses, black and white um, units of maybe eight people to try and force the desegregation that's already been made in national law, but hasn't been brought through into the states. And finds himself on a chain gang, finds himself imprisoned again on a chain gang. So he writes about that experience very viscerally. And then he's arrested for cruising and finds himself in prison for a third time. Only this time there's no glory about it and there's no fanfare about it. And it's as if it's a burden he's then forced to carry for the rest of his life when he was working on the March of Washington. So he became Martin Luther King's lieutenant. He helped. Martin Luther King's work in Birmingham, and then he was involved in the March in Washington. And at that point, the Republicans were trying to do anything they could to discredit the March from Washington. And John Thurmond takes his arrest record and reads it out in the Senate, this act of perversion, so that it is permanently in the record of the United States. And immediately, Rustin is sort of demoted inside the March on Washington. And it burned within him this sense of the great injustice that he could be working for black liberation, but his sexuality estranged him, or he could be working for sexual liberation, but his colour estranged him. So that sense that it's intersectionality before there was a word for intersectionality. And, you know, he's just the thing that I liked about him so much was that he just was not going to compromise on any of it. He's an extraordinary figure. Yeah, I mean, in the book, I mean, there were just. So many accounts of people who do extraordinary things with the terrible situations they've been put in. I mean, Reich included or Edith Jacobson and, you know, Malcolm X, many, many others. It's it's really it's really extraordinary. One of the things listening to you um, speak about the kind of perhaps the more naive idea of freedom, you know, liberation, 
the more kind of optimistic idea of, of freedom as just a straightforward horizon that we that we aim for that I, I, I thought really fascinating is um, that just the question of psychoanalysis in the book, psychoanalysis is, in a sense, your some of your ground. It's some of the thinking that you're doing is psychoanalytic and you're looking at the really powerful ideas of you know Freud, Reich and, and many others. But you're also kind of grappling with the question of psychoanalysis and politics. Like, what does psychoanalysis do when it's under pressure? Which psychoanalysts choose to kind of fight for something other than psychoanalysis? And I, and I was just really curious to hear you talk more about how you feel about psychoanalysis in, in the traces of it in the book. I think that's right, that it is my ground. I think it's been my ground in all my books. That That, that is how I naturally think. That is the level of reality and the, the sort of understanding of how people interact with each other, the psychoanalytic interpretation of that, the psychoanalytic dimension of that feels to me real. It feels to me like it makes sense of what goes on between people. But at the same time, I love Reich as this person who comes in and says, it isn't just that. It is also larger political forces impacting on people and if you're not talking about housing and if you're not talking about poverty and if you're not talking about people's working conditions and people's pay then you cannot answer to their unhappiness that also feels like it makes sense and like it's undeniable and Reich's sense that Reich's tragic utopianism Reich's belief that Things can be improved and things can be improved by protest and things can be improved by providing mass contraception and things can be improved by giving lectures to adolescents. Like this, this sort of whirring energy of optimism and labour about a better world, particularly at that point in history, particularly in the 1930s when the world wasn't heading towards a better world. It was very much heading away from that. It feels sort of heartrending to me. You know, I've, I've been involved in political activism on and off throughout my life, and I'm in no way immune to those sort of optimistic feelings. But at the same time, Freud's sort of seasoned pessimism about human nature, his sense of man is wolf to man, his sense that we build these oppressive structures because we are a danger to each other, feels to me also like a like something real, like something true and something painful to admit about ourselves. I don't feel like I can land down on either of them because I think both of them are telling us we oscillate between the two and they're telling us something that's very true about our capacities for pain and harm, but also our capacities for visionary action. But I was just going to say as well, um, there's a major connection between your book and my book in that the title of your book is Foucault talking about Reich, that tomorrow sex will be good again. You know, and he gives a real drubbing of, well, when does this good day come? When does the good day of our sexual lives arrive? If you're always posting happiness or contentment or freedom to a set of conditions that have not yet arisen, what are you, what are you doing? What is that mysterious work? And, you know, that Foucault's sort of world-weary pessimism also appeals to me. I think my problem as a writer is that I, I hear all of these voices. I can hear what they're trying to convey and the truth in what they're trying to convey. And it feels to me like they're, they're all right in different ways. There are aspects mm. of accuracy in each of their viewpoints. But at the same time, I'm just going to finish by saying Freud's pessimistic vision didn't protect him from what did happen to psychoanalysis. He wasn't able to see and right was the threat that the Nazis meant to psychoanalysis. And he allowed the Berlin Polyclinic to continue under Nazi rule. And in the end, it became a violent triage centre to send gay men to their death. That was that was what became of Freud's polyclinic. And Reich foresaw that. Reich the optimist saw that that was coming. And Freud the pessimist believed that he could keep psychoanalysis intact and separate from the realm of the Nazis. So he was an innocent in a way. It's so well done, I think, in the book, the way you you capture that kind of, you know, you use the word, like, the phrase tragic utopianism of Reich and this kind of dogged, dogged optimism in the way, in, in a way that ends with this, you know, this image that you kind of riff on throughout the book of this kind of this tragic image of 
of this confined space in which we will find liberation you know the the fantasy the hope that, that actually we can protect ourselves from from the damaging forces outside of us but might also somehow simultaneously be able to collect all the good of the of the cosmos into our into our bodies and minds and when i was reading it i was thinking about um i was thinking about how i, I read um adam phillips book recently his his short book on the early freud on the kind of first um, 40 oh, yeah. years of life. such an amazing book and he and he talks so beautifully about how Freud and the kind of you know Freud's followers and the institutions of psychoanalysis had to had to repress the things that they themselves had discovered and you know the death drive is, is part of that it's you know the attempt to kind of bring back under some kind of repressive control for the good of civilization that the very forces that psychoanalysis had kind of brought light and it, and and it's i think you you illuminate that difference between reich and freud and that really poignant moment moment of their encounters their first kind of love affair visit and then and then the break between them it's such a it's such an interesting way to kind of think about what then happens in the 20th century and also what happens in the relationship between europe and the us and yeah. i'll just ask one more question before i hand over to quest to, to to the audience which is Partly about the writing, you know, the writing of this incredibly complex, beautifully structured book. It strikes me that it, a lot of your writing is about the U.S. sort of dominantly. After, after your first book, To the River, about Virginia Woolf and the Ooze. Um, but this book is is about the kind of traffic between Europe and the U.S. and, and the, the, the psychoanalytic diaspora and what, what happens to those ideas and how they're taken up in all, in all these kinds of ways. But also that I think this book does something that your other books do too, but but as I said at the beginning, like even more so, which is a kind of traffic between yourself and others that I've often thought about your books as a, and I teach them and I, I, I use them a lot to kind of illustrate the question of how in writing you can sort of write about yourself by writing about other things and and vice versa. And my feeling is that in this book, in a way, there's more of you in it. Like you do tell us more about your past uh, in environmental activism and protest, your growing up in a, in a queer family under Section 28 and, and your training in herbalism and all these things. So I felt in a way there was more of you in it. And then and then that kind of um, that umbilical cord between you and all these these ideas that, that you know, come to life in all these extraordinary people in the course of the 20th century. And I wondered, <laughs> just kind of rambling excitedly now, but I wondered if. I wondered if Crudo changed something for you in the way you write. I know you wrote this book over the course, I think, of, of the other books of, of Crudo yeah. and Weather, but I wonder if something shifted in the way in which you think about yourself in your books through writing Crudo. Crudo, um, they're so intimately involved because I couldn't write this book until I wrote Crudo. So I wanted, I started writing this book in 2015 and it felt like the kind of nonfiction I'd written before was no longer possible. And it's funny looking back at this now because we're not in that world anymore. But for the four years of Trump government, it felt as if concepts like reality and truth were just utterly dissolved, that you, you couldn't talk about that. The, the sense of the kind of attack on reality was so profound. And this is the moment of Brexit, of the refugee crisis, the sort of series of events that it, it didn't feel like I could address them with the kind of, you know, stately third person nonfiction that I'd been writing. And the only thing I felt like I could do, or the, the only thing that worked to sort of unblock that was to write Crudo from this sort of hysterical, hyper paranoid character that was a fusion of me and Kathy Acker and get that feeling down, get the rawness of that feeling of reality fragmenting in front of you, the, the sense of the material world being invaded by the Twitter world and the sense that it was completely unclear what formally believed fundamental of democracy would be demolished laughingly in the next five minutes. So that, that um, disgorging of, of those feelings and of um, that moment felt like it then freed me to be able to come back and say, OK, what are the conditions that led to this moment? I want to turn around now. I don't want to 
look at this sense of rolling news and rolling crisis, I want to completely turn my back on it and look back through the 20th century and try and understand why the body is treated in these ways, why the body is subject to so much violence and how the body has been a source of liberation. Are those liberation movements that seem to be being undermined at an end? Have they failed? Or is this the ongoing narrative of liberation? Does it continually move back and forward like this? And it's interesting to sort of have the book come out in what feels like a very different world, not entirely different. It's not like those things have gone away, but there's a sense of slightly more business as usual return to some degree of those shared values. And I think what Crudo allowed me to do was sort of smash a mould of a kind of book that I was writing, a kind of, you know, I wander around a city and I think about dead people. It's the way I feel like I'm describing it now. That I didn't want to do that anymore. I, I wanted to be able to use my own experiences I had done before to open up subjects or to accompany the reader into those subjects, to declare the urgency of those subjects to me. But then I wanted to sort of turn my back on myself and travel with as much intimacy and urgency into the lives of analysts in 20s Vienna, 30s Berlin, um, early feminists in the 1970s, and allow them to be as sort of embodied and complex and difficult as a person might be writing a memoir to, to sort of bring that same level and texture of experience to all of those things and over the course of writing the book it was interesting I kept pushing that and my friend Charlie read the Freud chapter and was like but Freud doesn't have a body like who who is this Freud and bringing that in having Freud as a person with cancer having Freud as a body in pain all of those things felt like they animated the book and that that sort of level of intensity could fill all those different lives and basically to underscore the idea that ideas don't just arise. I wanted to write an intellectual history of the 20th century, but I also wanted that to be embodied because our ideas come out of our bodily lives. Our ideas come out of the experiences that our bodies and how those bodies are categorised. That that feels like the ground for thinking. And I wanted to put the two things back together. Yeah. And then towards the end, you you turn to the future in a way and it's really it's a really kind of beautiful culmination in the book to you know thinking about protest and climate and which you know again is peppered throughout the book but it's such a it's such a brilliant feat of kind of um connecting up the present and the past like the deep past and the more recent past and then thinking thinking ahead a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Let's have some questions. Okay, I'm going into the QA. Could you speak, Olivia, about Anna Mendieta and how you came to include her within the book? If there was one person who was going to be in it for, from, you know, when I first was thinking about this book in the 1990s, it was Anna Mendieta. I think really the moment I first saw Anna Mendieta's silhouettes, which are these extraordinary sort of carvings of the crude shape of a woman's body into various natural materials like beaches and ice and snow and they're filled with powder that looks like blood and sometimes they're overwhelmed by the tide and I, I saw them in the early 90s and just immediately felt like this encapsulates something about the body that I want to make sense of the sense that the body is subject to violence for specific reasons but also 
the body is a perpetual site of violence. The body is mortal. The body is continually assailed by various forces. The body is vulnerable. The body is fragile. And she she seemed to convey that sort of awesome general and the absolutely specific in a way that I just found electrifying. And then, of course, I saw them before I knew the biographical story, but I knew the biographical story a long time before I wrote the book that she died in mysterious circumstances falling out of a window that was open well above her body height mysteriously in the company of her husband she fell out of a window so this this sort of narrative of this woman's death that potentially involved domestic violence but perhaps didn't he was cleared of her murder and yet that question sort of remains so that she both um testified to what can happen to women's bodies and sometimes incredibly viscerally with the rape scene with the rape piece that she made in um, uh, MA year in Iowa but sometimes in a much more general way that she testified to that and then that she became the victim of those forces as well felt like you know it's not possible to write a book about the body and violence without talking about Anna Medjester I think. The question from Antonio out of the entire cast who were you most surprised to find yourself writing about in everybody? Oh good question and um, so, I mean, some people arrived in the book late, which always happens. Bayard Rustin, I hadn't put in until I realised that he'd been in the same prison as Reich, which is the sort of crossing point that I'm always looking for. And then he was obviously essential. But actually, the most surprising person really is Andrea Dworkin, because, you know, as a 90s feminist, I was very much on the other side of her in the porn wars. I felt like she was a sort of repressive figure. And to come back to her writing now, which has been... And brought back into publication, a collected essays came out called um, Last Days at Hot Slip. It's just there, edited by Joe Fateman. And to read that, as Catherine said earlier, you know, to read this uncanny, estranging, completely unique voice was like, hang on a minute, I think maybe I've misjudged Andrea Dworkin. And there's a lot to dislike about her. I did an event with Sarah Shulman the other day who's like, I feel like you gave her a really soft ride. And don't forget that she was involved in censorship of women's writing about sex and feminist writing that was the stance that she took and that's absolutely true she's she's still not a figure I wholly admire but there was something about her willing to absolutely speak honestly about sexual violence and domestic violence to do that with such force and such it's not lack of nuance because it is nuanced, but it just feels so visceral and direct. And to read that in this moment and to think 40 years have gone past and so little has changed. It, she felt to me like she just sort of shouldered her way into the book and insisted on being there. And I was very glad to come to terms with her. Yeah. And I think, I mean, what you do with, with her and Anna Mendieta and also um, uh, Philip Guston, the artist, is you really look at their works and you analyse their works, but you also analyse the context, like the really physical material conditions in which they created their their works. And, and, and that enables a kind of really, you know, multifaceted portrait of some of these thinkers who have become these figures who've become kind of hardened in popular imagination. I mean, Andrea Dworkin is such a good example of that. She, you know, she's such a trope, but you, but, but she really is alive um, in the book. Question from Amy Key. Hello, Amy Key. <laughs> um, I'd love to hear Olivia talk about how she identifies the main characters she writes about in this book, but also in previous and future ones, and how they help clarify or shape the inquiry of the book. I really didn't mean to write a book about Reich. I looked back at the proposal, the original Everybody proposal the other day, and it was like he was definitely going to be in a couple of chapters, but he wasn't going to be a sort of larger figure but what I realised you know I'm an obsessive writer and what I realised is that every area I wanted to go into he was somehow there he was there in illness he was there in sexuality he had experiences of protest he had experiences of incarceration and he spanned Europe and America he spanned these sort of he spanned psychoanalysis and the counterculture he brought together so many different arenas of bodily experience that it was sort of impossible to get away from him. There wasn't a chapter I could write where he didn't kind of come into it. And I was also fascinated by the way that his life was so difficult and disturbing that I wasn't writing about somebody who I thought was a hero or who I thought had lived a model life. 
by any means. His life in many ways is quite dislikable, but he illustrates the kind of forces that he believed everybody was working under. And that seems like such a more compassionate way to understand people's lives that we have our best aspirations, but we're also operating within a grid of conditions that sometimes limit us in humiliating and painful ways. And I think all of the characters in this book are people who are limited and flawed and have tragic elements and elements that are sort of hateful sometimes. But what I wanted to do was show why that was, why, how that had come out of the kind of situations and conditions that they were also very invested in protesting or in trying to change, that they were the victim of circumstances that they understood and wanted to liberate other people from. That seemed to me important. And as for how I choose people generally, I think people get under my skin. I think that's what really happened with Wonorovich and The Lonely City is that it just felt like there was almost an infinity of depth that I could travel into, that the work was speaking so strongly or the life was speaking so strongly to the area that I wanted to explore. And that's what I'm looking for when I'm looking for characters is somebody who can take me very far into that. I mean, the Marquis de Sade, like I didn't want to write about the Marquis de Sade, but he took me deeply into those experiences. So someone, someone anonymous. Thank you so much. So interesting. My copy of Olivia's book only just arrived, but I have a question that speaks in some way to both of your books, which is what do you think it means to live freely with a body that has been used? i.e. to inhabit a body that has been just a thing to someone else. Which is Andrew Dawkins' question. That I mean, she was somebody who'd experienced really extreme domestic violence. And I think it's also important to say the reason I think Reich is different to the other sexual liberationists is because the same thing happened to his mother. His mother had an affair, his father found out, and he subjected her to incredibly violent persecution for a year. She tried to commit suicide three times and on the third time was successful. So I think what underpins everything that happens with Reich, everything that Reich's trying to say about sexual liberation, it's not about orgasm. It's about a world in which a woman can have a sexual life without being subject to violence or violent death. So I think both, both of them are trying to answer that question of how can you live without the history of your own body and the history of every other woman's body or every other person who's been subject to violence body completely closing down on your possibility for happiness. And one of the things that I find so inspiring about Reich is that he does believe that that remains a possibility. He does believe that there's a way in which your body carries this and yet your body can transform this. Your body is the sort of site of alchemy in which the lived trauma in it can be changed into something else. And I think He's not given enough credit for how astounding that idea is or how much he understands the kind of pain a body can hold. He really knows how much pain a body can hold. And he still really believes in the possibilities of pleasure, joy and love. That that feels to me like really Reich's message. There's another question. What has your work on this book led you to think about trans experience and the body? Well, speaking as a non-binary trans person that people should just fucking get off trans people's backs <laughs> you know I think that that's the thing that it informs so much of my sense of we exist inside a grid of ideas about bodies that to many people feel utterly natural they can't understand why you might experience it as violent or oppressive or harmful because their experience of living inside that grid is like it's very roomy in this grid I love this identity of woman or man or white person or whatever it is but to the person who isn't having that experience it doesn't feel like that it feels like this oppressive trap it feels like a prison cell and I think seeing how viciously British culture at the moment is trying to police or deny trans experience is just relentless it's exhausting and relentless and I think part of what I wanted to do in this book is just be like this isn't a new thing this isn't a woke invention the trans identity Magnus Hirschfeld is one of the characters in the book that we haven't talked about tonight he was talking about transgender people and talking about gender identities and providing a home for transgender people in the 1920s in Berlin this these stories go back such a long way and this sense that gender is a construct and 
Like, if it's so real, why do you have to defend it so hard? If it's so incredibly binary and straightforward, why do they need to make such a fuss about it all the time? And if, on the other hand, it's fluid, why not just accept that and allow people to have the identities they have? I'm sorry, I'm sort of ranting, but that's the that's the sort of hotspot of my investment with the book, I think. Theresa Malone says, hi, Olivia, you said that as a writer, you can see the truth in what multiple voices are trying to convey. Has this always been the case or something that has developed over your career as a writer? I think it's some dreadful, like, oh, but I can see what they mean and I can see what they mean. No, I think it's just my personality, but at least I've had an outlet for it. (laughs) Enjoy your symptom. That's That's a very good question. Uh, somebody said i wonder if the absence of considering the body and pleasure is deliberate i don't i don't quite know how to read that question i don't know if you consider pleasure is it all just pain i'm sorry i don't know i i thought that i was talking about pleasure though now i'm thinking about it it probably does go down more on the side of painful experience which i guess i felt driven to report on it felt sort of vital to talk about, well, that's the narrative that arose out of a consideration of the body and freedom was the ways in which the body is unfree. And also, I think I end with a sort of vision of imagine the free body. And I'm aware that that imagining doesn't live inside that book. That's the next book that I'm writing of the sort of, well, what could our world look like? What kind of paradises could we build and what kind of pleasures could we have? So I think maybe it's worth thinking about it as like the first half of a longer set of books and the next one will be so much more pleasurable <laughs> but it's worth saying also that there there are lots of moments of of pleasure especially when you're perhaps when you're thinking back for instance to you know the kind of the the rush of protest of, of the activism that you were involved in or you know but but always ambivalently experienced you know also like when you talk about your days in brighton when you were in your late teens or early 20s and the kind of you know you you capture so well the kind of like you know being being swept along with pleasure but you know ending up at the um the gum clinic terrified you know like the rituals of being um you know a young person who is like you know talking the talk maybe of being liberated but then not being able to talk openly about contraception or 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 safety or all those kinds of things this is at the bottom of this is again sad it's the sort of the grim accounting of our pleasures like what what actually do our pleasures in the same way what do our freedoms look like what do our pleasures look like and what what really is the cost and where is the cost landing of that that felt sort of really important to i don't know analyze or lay bare but i think you're right i think there are there's intense pleasure for me in talking about performance and talking about nina simone and justin vivian bond or in looking at the artworks those those are sort of spaces of liberation for Gustin or Agnes Martin and things little sites of resistance I think when Agnes Martin says you know somebody's like what do you what's it like to be a woman artist and she says I'm not a woman I'm a doorknob that for me that's a site of pleasure that idea that you just bust category open is a site of pleasure yeah and I mean (laughs) but I think I mean my experience of reading this book is like like it's intensely pleasurable even though you know some of the material and I did think about it when I was reading I was thinking like it's it's grueling some of the research that you that you immersed yourself in you know really painful painful material but it's such a it's such a pleasurable experience seeing how you kind of bring all this material together and 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 how it opens up you know in towards the end when you're talking about how you know our past stays with us embedded in our bodies and we live whether we like it or not in the object world there is no steel lined box that can protect you but you but you ask the question in this you know hopeful way about what would it be like to live without fear to not have to have a fearful relationship to our bodies you know there is a kind of utopian question that Mm. that is really beautiful and kind of exciting thread throughout the book I think do buy Olivia's book you're in for the most amazing treat thank you Olivia thank you for writing this amazing book it's just it's so extraordinary and beautiful and so impressive and thank you for chatting with me and answering answering my rambling questions and answering um the audience's questions it's been it's been such a joy it's been so lovely to sort of 
travel so deeply into it. So I'm very grateful and I'm very grateful to everyone who's been here. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.